Hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. So glad that you're joining us for part two as we talk about spiritual gifts. And I've entitled the message today, Seven Gifts Wrapped in Genuine Love, Producing Seven Acts of Grace. Now, as we look at Romans chapter 12, it's important that we remember that this whole chapter should really be looked at as a unit. And so I want to back up just a little bit because we're diving in at verse number four. And I'm assuming that you remember what verses one, two, and three say, because Romans chapter 12, verse one, talks about the fact that we, because of God's mercy, Paul says, I beg of you, because of the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. So Paul has in the back of his mind, as he's talking about gifts that are given to the church, that these gifts are given to us because of the mercy of God and is given to us as we surrender ourselves as a living sacrifice. And Paul says, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And then he says, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And now a few weeks ago in the broadcast, I talked about coconuts, cookie cutters, and the cross. And I talked about how they catch monkeys, right? Uh, They have a coconut, they hollow it out, drill a hole, and they put a piece of fruit inside of that coconut shell. The monkey comes along and he sees that fruit and he can get his little fist into the inside of that coconut and he grabs onto that, say, a piece of banana, but then he can't get his hand out. And because he refuses to let go of that fruit, he becomes trapped. That coconut traps him. And so we are told that we are are not to be trapped in our sins anymore. Because of the mercies of God, we have been set free. And then we talked about the whole cookie cutter image of how many people live their lives. You know, we're not to be cookie cutter Christians in the way that we think. We are to be transformed. We're not thinking like the world thinks any longer. We are renewed. Our minds think differently because it has been changed by the gospel. So Paul reminds us that we're no longer conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then when that happens, as we surrender ourselves as a living sacrifice, then we can prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God in Christ Jesus. So with that as a backdrop, now Paul transitions and he begins talking about gifts to the church. And he reminds us that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In other words, there shouldn't be this thing called gift projection. Uh, What I call gift projection is when I have a spiritual gift, and I think everybody ought to have that spiritual gift. Uh, When I have this particular gift, and I I wonder why nobody else has this gift, and I think I've got the best gift, and I'm the best because I got the best gift. Now listen, God gives different gifts to different people. Every one of them are equal in importance, equal in significance, and necessary for the functioning of the body. Uh, Paul goes so far to say, you know, can the hand say the foot, I don't need you? Well, of course my foot and my hand are both needed. Now, listen, I can operate without my foot, but I'm going to be handicapped. I'm going to have a a harder time getting around if I don't have my foot. I need two feet, two hands, one head. And so God put us together in a very special way so that we work not independently of one another, but we work in conjunction with one another. Now, in Romans chapter 12, we have a list of seven gifts. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There are more gifts that are not listed that we have in this chapter. And uh, if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, uh, if we put them all together, we would have all of the gifts. But here, Paul gives us seven. So we're focusing on these seven. We looked at prophecy yesterday. We looked at serving yesterday. We looked at teaching yesterday. We looked at exhortation yesterday. Today, we pick it up with the gift of giving. 
generosity. You know, a, a giver's basic motivational drive is to conserve and to share resources. Conserve as much as they can so that it can share in order to meet the needs of others. You see, givers, they take special delight in discovering the needs that others have. As a matter of fact, they see needs that others oftentimes overlook. And as they meet these needs, they are fulfilled. You know, there's two things when you look at spiritual gifts as to whether or not you know you have these gifts. One is you are fulfilled. You know, I think about the teacher that teaches six hours a day. At the end of the day, they're exhausted, right? I think about the pastor who preaches two or three sermons on a Sunday. He's exhausted after he does those services. But he gets up the next Sunday, does it again. The teacher gets up the next day, she does it again. The server gets up the next day and does it again. That's one of the things that you see, you're fulfilled in that gift. If you're not fulfilled in it, you can't do it. You'll stop doing it. You know, you have primary gifts and you have secondary gifts in your life. I think that the primary gifts are the ones that you work the most. The secondary gifts are the ones that you work in as you are able to. For example, I can act merciful. Mercy is not my number one gift. Uh, every time I take that test, the spiritual gifts inventory, I get like a like a three or four out of 24. Uh, I am not gifted in mercy. Now, that doesn't mean I, I, I'm not merciful or I should not be merciful. We're all to be merciful because God has been merciful to us. But God gives certain people with this unique ability to be very merciful. Now, the reason you can't have all the gifts, because if you're strong on exhortation, that's probably my number one gift, exhortation, you're probably not going to be real strong on mercy because the exhorter is the one that says, you need to get up. When the person who has mercy says, oh, don't worry about getting up, just rest. Uh, and so you need both of those people in your life. As a matter of fact, I think all of us need at least three people in our lives. I think all of us need a Barnabas in our life. You know, I love Barnabas. I love studying about Barnabas. And, and his name means son of encouragement. His name was actually Joseph. But he took on the name of Barnabas because his name, Barnabas, became so synonymous with how he lived his life. Wherever he went, he encouraged people. As a matter of fact, Barnabas was the one when Saul was converted. Barnabas says, hey, let Saul come on with us. And they were all afraid of him. I mean, you think about that. Saul was like a modern-day terrorist. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, Saul gets saved. And you're thinking, what better way to wreak havoc within the church as to pretend to be saved so that you can be one of them, and then you can do an inside job and tear the whole thing apart? Well, that's what most of the church thought. They were, they were very leery of, of Saul, who became Paul, but not Barnabas. Barnabas says, yeah, let him come on and be part of us. And there's another person that Barnabas was so very, very patient with and so very merciful with, and that is a guy by the name of John Mark. <laughs> Oh, the Apostle Paul gave up on John Mark after he went on a missions trip with him, and, and, and John Mark apparently missed Mama's home cooking, and, uh, and so he was sent home or went home, and, and uh, he wanted to go on the, uh, the next missionary journey. Paul said, no way, I'm not taking that quitter with me. I'm not taking John Mark with me. So he went with Barnabas, and, and we don't know exactly where they went or what they did, but they went on a different journey. And, but later in the life of Paul, toward the end of his life, he says, send to me John Mark. You know, he's very useful to me. You know why he was useful? Because Barnabas invested in him, and Barnabas spent some time with him in encouraging him. So you need a Barnabas in your life. Number two, uh, you need an Apostle Paul in your life. Paul is one of these guys that will kick in the seat of the pants and say, get up and get moving. And uh, we all need that type of person that comes along that exhorts us to keep on keeping on what we want to throw in the towel, what we want to give up. Now, listen, we need Pauls in our lives, those exhorters in our lives to tell us to keep on going. And then there's a third type of person in your life. That's a Timothy. 
Every one of us should be investing in the lives of others. Our kids just got back from youth camp, and I was so proud of our four leaders that invested a week going to youth camp. Four of our leaders says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a week of vacation, and I'm going to spend it with these kids at youth camp. I got another group that's going in a couple weeks. And I think about them. They are investing. They are investing in Timothy. I told them, I said, you don't know who's in that camp group that's going. It could be the next pastor of Hickory Ridge Community Church. Who knows how God's going to do that? So you need a Barnabas in your life. You need a Timothy in your life, and you need a Paul in your life. When I think about this gift of giving, uh, this ability to be generous, a few times in life, you'll see this gift really come to surface. Now, one thing I notice about givers is they don't really like to be in the limelight. You know, through the history of our church, there has been many times where people have given a very generous donation to our church, and they will say, now, now, pastor, please don't tell anybody that I'm doing this. And it'd be a very generous gift, and I would hold their confidence, and, uh, and I would tell them, okay, you know, uh, the, the financial secretary, she's going to know who did it, uh, and I don't know who, who gave it. I said, but nobody else is going to know uh, who has given this gift, uh, because givers who are truly givers, uh, they're not giving to be in the limelight. As a matter of fact, I think if you're giving to be in the limelight, there's a hidden agenda for your gift, and I'm not sure that you were gifted in giving. I think you may be trying to get some attention by your giving. I think that's what the Pharisees did, but I've discovered that those who are, are most generous and gifted in giving are those who don't want to be in the limelight, and they just love to give, and they find that they are fulfilled in giving. There's another gift that Paul mentions here, and it's that gift of leading. Uh, When you think about that leader, this is a person who is excited, who is an an inspirational person, and and somebody who has been given the ability by God to inspire others and to coordinate actions of others. Now, now they have to inspire others to do God's work the way uh, they speak and the way they do their duties. And, And I think the very best example of this is Jesus. And I think about leaders. Uh, so many times we think about a leader with a, a strong, uh, outgoing personality, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily always true. I think sometimes the silent leader is just as powerful as the bold leader that, that says a lot. And here we see Jesus as that best example. Jesus not only would inspire their emotion, but he would inspire them to be devoted to him. Not just feeling good, not just acting good, but compelling others to action because you want to not because you have to. When we think about this wonderful gift of leadership, leadership is taking a walk and having people follow you. Uh, Somebody says, if you want to know if you're a leader, uh, just turn around and see if there's anybody following you. Uh, Now, if nobody's following you, then you're just taking a walk. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a walk. Uh, I recently went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor says I need to lose a little weight, and I need to do a little exercising, so so I picked up walking, right? And every day, uh, along with my quiet time, I have two things every day that I really devote myself to, time in the Word and prayer every day, and then I now I'm going to do a little exercising every day, and uh, and, and every, I don't, not every day I don't hit it, right? Uh, but I set a goal to walk 10,000 steps. Now, if I only do 6,000, that's not a failure, right? Because 6,000 is better than zero. And so when you think about uh, this matter of following through, an exceptional leader is one who inspires people not only emotionally, but also will lead them to action, compel them to action. It's a wonderful gift for the church. A church is really not a church if it doesn't have leaders. When we look at the very early church, way back in the book of Acts, they appointed immediately deacons. They appointed immediately apostles that were leading the congregation. 
So a church without leadership is really not a church at all. I mean, how can you have a church with no pastors, no leadership at all, no deacons, no elders, uh, no small group leaders? The church always must have leaders, right? And so God calls up people who are gifted to lead. Now, there's another gift that we see here in Romans chapter 12, and that is the gift of mercy. Cheerfulness with mercy. You know, I think about a mercy giver. Their basic motivational drive is that they sense and they respond to the emotional and spiritual needs of others. You know, those with the gift of mercy, uh, those are the ones who have this divine ability to sense when somebody is hurting, and they respond to it with love and understanding. And now you think about it for just a moment. If you find yourself in a hospital, if you find yourself down and discouraged, uh, there's probably somebody that you want there to be with you. Now, the mature mercy giver is kind and gentle. Mercy givers, they, they, they have this sense, and they are able to reflect, and they can identify the spiritual and the emotional atmosphere around them. It's a wonderful gift that they have. Uh, they can see a need when others haven't even seen it. You know, you think about prophets and organizers and teachers, and, and they tend to project their attitudes to others. You know, these are gifts that are projecting out, but the one who has mercy, they tend to take on the, the hurts of others. The gift of mercy is the, the ability to sense when somebody needs help and, and they need to be understood and they need to be connected with. This is a wonderful gift. Mercy people, they have this need to be needed because they want to reach the needs of others. Wow, what a blessing they are to our church. So those are the seven gifts that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12, seven gifts to the church. Now, let me remind you that these gifts are designed to glorify God and build up the body. When we think about the success of your gift, there's two things you look at. Do I feel fulfilled? And is there fruit within my giftedness? It takes both, uh, because sometimes we can be doing something and be very fulfilled in it. You know, I think about uh, people that, I've got some friends that they just, they love to preach, but they don't want to lead churches, uh, which doesn't make sense to me, but that's what they want to do. They want to preach. I think that gifting is is more for them than anybody else. I think they kind of get a, a charge out of being in front of people, and they kind of like that, but they, they don't want the, the responsibility of, of leading a congregation, the responsibility of pastoring. Uh, and maybe they're just gifted in evangelism, and that's that their particular gift. And I, I kind of understand that. Uh, then their desire would be to see people saved, not just the desire to proclaim. So when we look at these gifts, they must be wrapped in genuine love. We know that we're gifted in a particular area because we're fulfilled in that area, and there's also fruit that is produced because of our gift. I remember many years ago, uh, we had a little Sunday school class, and I had a guy that wanted to teach that class. There was about 15 people in the Sunday school class. It was an adult Sunday school class, and I kind of needed somebody to teach the class, and so this guy volunteered. And so he went and taught the class, and and so uh, I uh, was in there with him the first week. He did a pretty good job, and so I kind of left him and said, okay, uh, it's your baby. It's your class. Go for it. And I gave him the curriculum that he needed, and he taught the class. And about a month later, I decided to go back and check on the class. And, and so I walked into the class, and, and, uh, and lo and behold, there was only two students in the class. I said, wow, this is wonderful. You're taking a class of 15 and got it down to a, a class of two. And, uh, and I was kidding around with him. And I said, well, I guess you got it down to a, a size that you can handle now. And I started kind of joking with him a little bit. I said, well, well listen, let's be serious here. What's happened? You know, this class was a pretty strong class with 15 members, and, 
and now there's only two. Uh, this guy, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, well, you know, Pastor, you gave me a bunch of duds in this class. I said, a bunch of duds? What are you talking about? And then I, I began to find out what was happening within the class, and, and I found out this guy was an exhorter, but not a very good teacher. And, and uh, one of the ladies came one Sunday, and, and she was just heartbroken, bless her heart. And she was going through a difficult time, and, and she was pouring out her heart to the class. And this teacher says, well, you made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. And uh, so I kind of got a hint as to what was happening. This guy not only did not have the gift of teaching, he wasn't very merciful, and he didn't have the ability to lead very well. And I says, I don't think the problem is with the class. I think we've got you in the wrong place. And so we put this man in a different area, and he excelled in that different area. Well, he was fulfilled in teaching, but he wasn't very fruitful in his teaching. And so when we think about the gifts God gives us, they must be wrapped in genuine love. Romans chapter 12, 9 through 13 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then I love this next little phrase. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Continue to take care of the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, There's three things that I see in this particular passage of Scripture that talk about being wrapped in genuine love. Now, the first one is not going to take you by surprise, and that is my attitude, right? Uh, I, I must have love that is genuine. You know, Psalm 145 says that the Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. So my attitude must be sincere. I must be genuine in what I love. Now, this next one might set you back a little bit. Uh, There's that word, abhor. Now, biblically speaking, there are positive and negative aspects to hatred. Now, I want you to hear me out on this one because some of you may write me off as a heretic when I start talking about what Paul is alluding to here. But when we think about what the Bible says positively and negatively about hatred or what I abhor, there are certain things that it is acceptable to hate because God hates them. Indeed, this is very much a proof of a right standing with God. Psalm 97.10 says this, that those who love the Lord hate evil. You see, hate derives from this, this strong dislike or this ill will toward a person or things. It's an emotional attitude. A, a person may oppose or, or may detest us and, and, and come against us. You see, love and hatred are often standing opposed one to another. You see, wisdom says there's a time to love. And there's a time to hate. That's funny, Ecclesiastes 3.8. Solomon wrote that. In the biblical record, everything must have this expression or it's going to experience hate. The Bible says that God hates certain things. Now, I think the issue is kind of like anger. Now, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This matter of hate propels you to do certain things. And, and I'm not talking about taking revenge on somebody. The Bible says that God hates religiosity, Isaiah 1.14, and Amos 5.24. Why does God hate religiosity? Because it's a false form of faith that keeps people from experiencing a true relationship with the Lord. It's the fake thing. It's like somebody selling you something that is real, pretending that it is real. And you buy this thing and you find out, man, this guy ripped me off. 
You should be determined to say, hey, I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. In Hosea 9.15, God is looking down at the people. Hosea is given this prophecy that he has to live out. And it says, because of their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I'm going to drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All of their leaders are rebellious. Wow, these are some strong words. You see, when we think about hate, there's other things that God's word says that he hates. In Zechariah 8, 17, God says, you know what I hate? Hypocrisy. I hate lying. Isaiah 61, 8 says that God hates those who do wrong. Malachi 2, 16. Now, now this one may throw you back because I imagine that a large majority of you who are listening right now, as you hear me quote this verse, you, you might take it personally, but in Malachi 2.16, it says, God hates divorce. Now, God doesn't hate the divorcee, doesn't hate the one who's been divorced, but he hates what divorce does to a family, what it does to a husband and a wife as they're torn apart. That's why Jesus says, what God has brought together, let no man tear it asunder. God hates violence, Malachi 2.16. God hates idolatrous uh, practices, Hosea 9.15. God hated, in Jeremiah 44.4, he hated the way that the prophets were being treated. You know, I think about Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet. He spends his entire life preaching the gospel, encouraging his people that he loved to turn, and, and they treated him poorly. They, in one case, beat on him and and so God's word says, I, I hate those who treat prophets that way. They're trying to teach you the truth. And what do you do? You, you attack them. You know, as I think about the theology underlying God's hatred rests on two essential qualities of God. God is holy and God is just. As a divine being with standards, God hates anything that despises, detests, or disregards these standards. In return... As we think about how we can deal with hatred, you know, I think it should motivate you. You know why I want to be such a great husband to my wife and I want to provide such a godly example of what a, a good marriage looks like because I hate divorce. I, I don't want my kids to have to go through the experience of a divorce and, and I don't want my wife and I have to go through the experience of divorce. And, and I think about all the people that I know and love and, and they're looking at me and they say, well, pastor, why did you go through that divorce? And, and the ripple effect that will be caused because my marriage falls apart. You see, when we look at wrapped in genuine love, don't be afraid to speak against evil. Oh, you do it with compassion and you do it with kindness and respect. But sometimes we've got to realize there's some things that don't need to be led into our homes. You know, I think about the commercials that are on TV today. It used to be that we'd preach against these things, but now we don't hear a whole lot about this evil that is coming through the internet, through our television sets. And, and even if you find a decent program, I was watching Andy Griffith the other day, and uh, the commercials that came on in between uh, the show were just horrific and uh, pure evil coming in. So we must identify what is evil. There's one other thing that we see when we're wrapped in genuine love. We have a genuine love, the attitude of love. We abhor certain things, but then. I look at ambition. Verse number 13 of Romans chapter 12 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, when I'm really in love with somebody, I am serving them fervently. 
and I'm doing it because I want to show them hospitality. I'm meeting the needs of the saints. I'm praying for them, uh, and I'm helping them any way that I can. So that's my ambition, that I'm fervently serving the Lord. You know, I, I think about serving others. You know, I, I can care for somebody without loving them, but I really can't love somebody until I care for them. When we think about how God has gifted us, God has given us these wonderful gifts. And so I want to encourage you, uh, we're going to have to go into the third day of this uh, of this broadcast to get the last part of the message. So join me tomorrow because we're going to talk about seven acts of grace that are produced because of the spiritual gifts that God gives us. When our gifts are wrapped in love, we discover that it produces acts of grace. And that's going to be found in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. I hope that you join me tomorrow as we wrap up this third message on the gifts that God has given us. If I can help you with anything, please shoot me a text, 252-267-2365. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm praying for you. If you have a prayer request, I'd be happy to get our prayer team on Thursday morning to pray for you specifically. Just shoot me a text and say, hey, would you pray for me? 252-267-2365. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.